Hello and welcome to Design Unmuted, a podcast that centers marginalized voices in design, art, and all things creative. I am your host, Divine, a landscape designer and social critic. Hi, and thank you for tuning in for another episode of Design Unmuted. Uh, My guest on this episode is Dr. Diane Jones-Allen, a principal landscape architect of Design Jones and program director for Landscape Architecture, College of Architecture, Planning and Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Arlington. Diane's research and practice are guided by the intersection of environmental justice, identity, and sustainability in cultural landscapes. This episode was actually recorded about a year ago. So this is one from the archives, but I'm very excited to share it with you. On this first part, um, Dan and I talk about maroon landscapes and maroon landscapes, the people, not the color. So if you thought it was a color, you definitely need to listen in and learn about this community. In your presentation, you were talking about maroon landscapes. Yes. And I had never come across that term. No. Oh. Um, yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness, my education failed me. Or maybe well, I failed myself. Your, I don't know. <laughs> it's not you. Your education did fail you because when I started talking about that, so many African Americans and, you know, um, majority my white Americans would say to me, maroon, you mean like the color? They had never heard of that. Mm-hmm. And then they would say, and then when I would tell them, they said, oh, yeah, like in Jamaica and uh, Haiti. And I said, no, there were maroons in the United States. He said, no, there weren't. There weren't any colonies of freed black people that just lived. And I'm like, yes, there were. <laughs> My goodness. So <laughs> could you tell us a little bit more, like kind of like give us like a little brief explanation, a little bit of a history of maroon landscapes? Oh, sure. So... Uh, you know, when during the uh, time of the Middle Passage um, and when slavery was, you know, um, occurring. (laughs) uh, So what would happen often, um, so we all know about, you know, people who, so there's, okay, so there's this myth, right, Mm -hmm. that you know, uh, Africans were kind of docile and just kind of went along with this, or they jumped off and, you know, died. Many of them were brave and just decided they weren't going to do it. And they died, they jumped over in the middle passage, you know, those that didn't just die from the treatment, but lots, when they got close, you know, to shore, they would jump off and then swim. And that's where the word maroon comes from because they would be marooned, right? Like maroon is the term, like you're marooned, maybe you're like stuck somewhere, right? Mm. Yeah, so they would, they would maroon themselves. They would jump off and, you know, and, um, and, and that happened, you know, in the, cause the trade was going to like, you know, South America, Brazil, and, you know, to the West Indies and right. States and, you know, England at one time, everywhere. So they, so that's why, you know, okay, so you had that. And then you had lots of slaves who did what they call petite maroonage mm. and grand maroonage, meaning some would um, just decide, I'm not taking it. I really love this. So they would say, yeah. okay, 
I, I, I'm not escaping, you know, I'm not going off with Harriet Tubman and who was wonderful and brave and took mm -hmm. people to the North. I'm not going to do that, but I'm not staying on this plantation. Right. And the reason why um, someone would say, well, why wouldn't they want to go to the free states? And, you know, if you study, you realize that just because you went to the free states doesn't mean that there weren't, um, you know, hazards and still mistreatment. Right. You know, even though they didn't have slavery as their industry, mm -hmm. uh, they, there still was, was racism and prejudice in those states at that time. I and mean, that's why a lot of people went on to Canada because, right. they, you know, um, so a lot of them felt, you know, we, we don't want to go and be free in the Americas. We don't want to be a part of the system at all. So they would totally right. um, form colonies just mm -hmm. as they did, you know, in, um, you know, in places like Haiti, they form, you know, they would just go up into the hills. And in America, uh, they went to um, the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, there's a book by this um, author Sayers, who's an anthropologist, who did okay. a lot of anthropology and found remnants of maroon um, settlements in the Great Dismal. So the Great Dismal Swamp is that North Carolina, Virginia. And then we mm. all know of, you know, um, the people that were in, you know, the Sea Islands, the Gullah culture, a lot of them were the same thing. They were just people that decided, you know, they're going to go <laughs> yeah. live free. They're not going to be slaves. Right. Gonna... So, and, um, and then the area that I'm studying, which most people didn't know about, was there were large maroon colonies in Louisiana, in the mm. swamps. Because right. the same thing. So New Orleans was settled alongside the Mississippi River and all of that was swamp. So I did, I, I uncovered a lot of maps that showed, you know, when New Orleans, you know, because New Orleans was, yeah, it was a swamp. They had to lot dig, dig um, that's why we have all those canals and they did a lot of filling, you know. Yeah. So at first um, the plantations were located along the river in this kind of arpent system, meaning that the each plantation would like, you know, face like have its face onto the river, the Mississippi. And then the back of the plantation would be all this wooded, the swamp. And so um, enslaved people would just leave and go into the swamps. And the petite maroonage was when some people, they would kind of go for a while and come back. Um, and then a lot of them would depend a lot on enslaved people like coming to the edge of the plantation and giving them stuff. And then some of them, I mean, men, women, children, families, they, they just went permanently and built settlements in the swamp. Okay. Yeah. And I, there, I really love them because it's I like the idea of saying, you know, I'm here, I'm not running away, you know, yeah. to the north. But I'm not going to be a slave. I'm going to be free. Right. My right. Own and I'm going to be free right here. And right. of course, it's rough. But um, the reason why they like the swamps is because it was rough and it was harder for other people, slave catchers and other people to come into um, those areas. Right. But unfortunately, and they built, and the other thing, like, so I'm writing a book right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's called The Maroon Landscape. <laughs> um, oh, incredible. Yeah, um, semicolon, a cultural, um, a cultural method for uh, uh, coastal restoration. Mm. And so um, because 
you know, more and more people are realizing that the way we're living <laughs> is not um, the problem. <laughs> it's a problem. It's not conducive to a healthy climate. Right. And um, people are kind of looking to indigenous cultures. And so I view the Maroons as an indigenous culture. And so I said, wow, they were able to live. And one thing, one thing that made me put the two together, like, okay, so what, not only looking at them, you know, as a, a person of African descent, thinking, mm -hmm. wow, this is a story that they hide because they always want us to think everybody was, you know, shuffling yeah. along and happy being slaves. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I said, these people weren't, they were brave and they were, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I love them because of that. But as a landscape architect, I love them. The more and more I start to um, read and learn about them was that they actually lived and preserved the wetlands, right? right. And post-Katrina, you know, like, uh, well, pre-Katrina, um, one reason why, you know, Katrina, it happened because of the surge. It didn't really happen because of the hurricane. You know, people think, you know, because the hurricane kind of did some damage and then went out to the Gulf and then it came through the central wetlands, basically mm -hmm. up the Mississippi Gulf outlet into the Bayou Bienvenue and, you know, broke the flood walls and flood the city, right? Mm -hmm. um, had the Bayou Bienvenue was a full cypress swamp. And the scientists have said that had that cypress swamp been there, right now it's just stumps, right? Right. And that happened because of saltwater intrusion, because of building this channel to get boats quicker to the Mississippi River, right? Commerce, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And they hardly ever used it, but what it did, it allowed all those trees to die, which stopped, which which would have prevented the surge or would have slowed it down, right? Right. So um, post Katrina, there have been many, you know, groups working out. Okay, how do we restore the the coast, and how do we bring the so those cypress swamps back? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about the Maroons, the fact that they lived in those wetlands and the way they lived preserved the wetlands because they needed those trees for cover. Right. They needed right. the swamps and, you know, not only for food, you know, catching whatever, you know, alligators and animals and things and the plants, you know, so they they learned how to live in there. Unfortunately, um, unlike in, you know, Haiti, where you can actually trace and uh, in Jamaica, too, you can actually trace certain populations and um, areas, uh, villages and towns directly to maroon colonies like, you know, like oh. they they stayed right and they just evolved. True. Right. Right. Yeah. Where in America, uh, the the Maroons, you know, and especially too, because in Haiti, right, the the Haitian Revolution was won because of the help of Maroons, right? Mm. Maroons that came down from the hills and fought, you know. Oh wow! So yeah, so the the Haitian Maroons actually really helped the revolution, but um, mm. and so you can trace, you know, people and and locations back to these were Maroon these maroon colonies here, right? In America, you can't really do that. And a lot of it, um, now in the Great Dismal Swamp, like I said, this archeologist has done and found stuff and been mm -hmm. able to trace. Um, and we have the Sea Island people, but in Louisiana, the problem was the plantations began to expand and then there became the industry of um, 
you know, logging, taking the cycles, right. houses, building channels, you know. Um, and so uh, the, the, uh, they would bring slaves in to, you know, cut trees and help dig canals. And the slaves actually often would hire, pay the Maroons to help them because they know the Maroons had been living in there and knew, they knew where the good lumber was. But unfortunately, they were kind of helping in their own demise because the wow. more you dug channels and the more you, you know, cut down the trees and depleted the wetlands and the, and the plantations grew and the city spread, you know, as then you were taking away where they were living. Right. And eventually, you know, they were able to get caught by slave catchers and basically their environment was destroyed. So, oh my goodness. That's, that's one reason why um, people. So how long did that take? Uh, how long was that uh, community established until that? Oh, yeah. So, like about around during the seven, like I see, like around the 1800s then um you know like pre-emancipation um, right. communities started to you know dissipate because of you know the industry because of the the spread right. of development the city spreading the plantations growing lumber and and canal digging just right their environment and um where you know in other parts where that didn't happen you know can trace themselves back but um, but uh, for a long time they were there you know from the 1600s right and it was interesting too because they had interesting relationships with the Cajuns which are you know um, really Canadians <laughs> <laughs> yeah les Acadiens <laughs> yes they came down and a lot of them lived in the swamps and then um, in uh, uh, and you know Africans depending on which part of the country um, or African-Americans Africans have had um, interesting, sometimes bad relationships and sometimes good relationships with Native mm. Americans. In Louisiana, they tend to have a good relationship. They both kind of lived in those um, swamps together. Right. And with knowledge and techniques. And, um, and that's where, you know, a lot of that come, a lot of that led to like the Mardi Gras Indians. So they're African-Americans. It's a long tradition who, dress up in these kind of um, with feathers and beads kind of right. in recognition. Um, you know, they call themselves African Indians. Uh, oh, okay. recognition of this kind of relationship they had with Native Americans. That's um, incredible. So yeah, so like, you know, so the Cajuns who often were, you know, being ostracized, you know, um, by the, you know, the other population, you know, who lived in the swamps and mm. the Native Americans and these Maroons, they would exchange goods and, you know, meld culture and yeah. That's incredible. So yeah, I'm like, I was, I, I got very fascinated by these Maroon landscapes because they're quite different from the black towns that were developing after the civil war. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? Um, and so like, I actually have a question about that. So <laughs> after like, after the civil war that these black towns developed because freed black people wanted to have their own communities and, and wanted to have agency. And, and often they weren't allowed to really be part of, you know, the greater society. True. So it was, it was almost like there, there was no choice. Yeah. And like recently um, I've, I've, I've been seeing on social media, 
that um, there's been a, like a lot of like black families or black communities that have gathered resources to purchase land mm -hmm. uh, in an attempt to to start kind of like building uh, like a, an ex exclusive black communities. Uh, and like, I mean, that's like coming from like, like historically being so oppressed in mm -hmm. like in society and I, I trying to find, I guess, some solace. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, do you think that, um, I, I'm not talking specifically to these recent movements. Do you think that, how do you feel about that, those kind of movements as like uh, creating exclusive black communities as a, as a solution to the discrimination that uh, black and racialized bodies face um, in space? All right, I just want to take a moment to thank the Real Estate Foundation of BC for sponsoring this episode of Design Unmuted. The Real Estate Foundation of BC is a philanthropic organization working to advance sustainable land use and real estate practices in British Columbia. They do this by funding projects, connecting people, and sharing knowledge. Their grants support not-for-profit organizations working to improve BC communities and natural environments, through responsible and informed land use, conservation, and real estate practices. They're particularly interested in land use projects that contribute to the upholding of indigenous rights and title and racial equity and justice. You can learn more at www.refbc.com. Thank you for your support of Design Unmuted. Now, let's get back to it. Okay, so um, it's going to sound like I'm going around Robin Hood's bed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one misnomer that, you know, because um, I, I grew up in the American system, you know, I was born in Baltimore. My father actually came from a black incorporated town. It was called Blackstock in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, um, uh, it was, um, you know, black <laughs> it had been like his father had been like a sharecropper and eventually owned the property and so that happened to a lot of that so actually all the land and everything ended up being owned by black people mm. and uh, and actually i still have relatives that live there so they had, they moved like my father did up no up through the great after the great during the great migration they moved north to work in the factories along the east coast that's how he ended up in baltimore where i was yeah. born Anyway, but we would always go down there. And like I said, I still have cousins there and I really loved it. Anyway, so I grew up in the American school system and in the American school system, basically, you know, you learn about slavery. There's like a couple of pages. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, and then, you know, from the movies you see and what you learn in school, basically you learn that slaves were bought here for labor right? They were bought here for labor, right? But the truth is, <laughs> they were bought here for labor, but they also were bought here for knowledge, right? Absolutely. Because, in, you know, take Louisiana, the, the French colonists were dying till they went in, um, you know, uh, Senegambians came, they brought them here and because of the landscape, so they knew how to grow rice, and you know cotton and they knew about like a wet swampy land you know and so they were able to bring this knowledge right 
about how do you do drainage, how you did canals, how you do irrigation, you know, how you do rice paddies, all these things those colonists had no idea. Jeez. <laughs> so, um, yes. And, you know, uh, the slaves often were the craftsmen, the metal workers, the brick makers, you know, we we're just talking about making brick, you know, so they, they knew all that stuff. Right. So when you had, you had uh, uh, black people, um, you know, so um, post slavery, right? There was reconstruction, but, you know, white people weren't going to have that. There were too many of it. That's a good example, right? Because in during reconstruction, you had all these black people that were becoming senators and, you know, thriving, and then they weren't going to have that. And, you know, we have the Ku Klux Klan and things to shut all that down. Mm. And, you know, Black people tended to be pushed. Myself and um, another professor, Kate Holliday, who's been doing a lot of work on freedmen towns in, same thing, you know, freedmen towns in, um, along the Trinity River. So we're doing a project. Um, we just applied for a grant. Hopefully we'll get it to kind of map and look at these freedmen towns. There's one freedmen town. We're actually working with the people there, Joppy. It's in South Dallas. And it's along the river. It's a be, between the um the cement pat the cement factory you know talk about environmental injustice and the river right um and that's where they put usually these people ended up on bottom lands and lands that people didn't want i mean now they want them because the river is really cool now right and it was like so they <laughs> ended up there but anyway so if you study the history of these towns especially there are so many and they're famous ones like uh the uh the town in tulsa oklahoma right mm -hmm. where they you know they those people same thing they 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 were put they, you know they went there they you know to um because they couldn't be accepted by regular society and settled and because of the knowledge okay so this is why i talked about why you know um we were brought here for knowledge because mm -hmm. people were smart and and had people been left alone, right? So you look, yeah. at, look at like the, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the town in Tulsa, right? They had banks and businesses. It was totally, it was all black. They had schools, they were thriving. And they, and all of a sudden, you know, they come and drop bombs on them and burn them all down because they were thriving, right? Right. So that has been an issue that when uh, black people, you know, um, because I think what, you know, black people just want to thrive, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and so, and they're talented. They had knowledge. Their ancestors were brought here for all this knowledge they had. Yeah. And so when we're left alone, we thrive, but that can't be, that can't be stood for. And so, um, the most successful of these towns end up being destroyed, you know, one way or the other, mm. um, highways dropped on them, you know, <laughs> later on. Yeah. And, or burnt intentionally. I mean, there are several, you know, there's a town in Florida There, you know, there are other people have documented this stuff. Um, so because when black people are left alone, I mean, left alone, right? Given, right. Just, leave us alone, let us go to school, let us do what great. we do. <laughs> <laughs> what has happened time after time okay. is we're not left alone, right? Things are intentionally done to thwart right down right turn it down right um so um i think that's you know that's the issue mm -hmm. if, if there are you know if these if these settlements happen are and they're successful will they be left alone 
Right. You do know? you do you think that gives this this right here we need to drop a freeway or we need to increase the flood zone, right? Right. So move or we need to uh you know, yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean I really hope that like with everything we've gone through that this is not something that would still be happening. But maybe that's too naive of me to to think. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's true, it is continuous. Oh, sometimes it's it's really difficult to to um, to stay positive about certain things because it's like what happens, like proof points otherwise. <laughs> But, you know, I think that um, awareness, you know, um, that's why history is so important, like awareness and, you know, which, you know, uh, black people are resilient, <laughs> never giving oh, yeah. up and, and continuing with our knowledge and ingenuity, um, you know. It's almost, we have no choice. Yeah. Like survival requires <laughs> that that resilience, mm -hmm. you know. And I, so you know, saying we're gonna try to do a black town—that's creative thinking. Why not? You know, right? That work, yeah. Try, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like um, I've had mixed feelings about that, um, but the more like this—that's why I, I really like to ask this question. Um, because sometimes I feel like by like almost like leaving what would otherwise be like predominantly white cultural, like kind of like oppressive spaces for, for, for black people, it's almost like giving that system a free pass to not correct it. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is like, oh no, but like we should also be okay. We should thrive also. Yes. Also in all those places. Um, but it's complicated, right? Yeah. So I, I just wanted to ask you also, how did you feel being uh, in Tanzania the first time? Because, or being in a predominantly black um, country for the first time in your life? So um, it's interesting, right? Because the relationship between, um, okay, let me not, uh, <laughs> so she said what? Um, uh, the relationship between African-Americans and Africa is very complicated, right? Right. Because there are black people, and I have some of my family who say crazy things to me, like I'm not African. And I'm like, oh. okay, you know, <laughs> you know. Why not? Often, Africans who come to America and because, and the reason is the same reason, right? Because mm -hmm. there's somebody in between who's, you know, so if you come to America, you, uh, and I've talked to, you know, Africans that said this, you know, a realization. So you, you've been in a place where, you know, the power is black mostly, you know, and you come to a country where the power, the access is white, it's not black. Right. And the and people that are black are at the bottom of this society. So it's better to be African and not to be associated with African-Americans. Mm. You have that. And then you have the the um, 
that same society, which is giving you Tarzan movies and all these things to black people who mm-hmm. often make them feel like, oh, I don't want to be associated with that. Right. And neither right. one of these images are the reality, right. Of those people. hundred percent. Yeah. Someone else has been doing the projection, right. Right. Somebody else has been coming up with a narrative for these two um, right. groups of people. And so it's, uh, you know, I just think, you know, it's like imperative of us to get the, the middleman, right? There's been a middleman in between Africans and African-Americans, right? Right. <laughs> Perhaps part of the, <laughs> it's like the culture. yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I like the reason why I asked that question is because I grew up, uh, in in Burundi and Niger and traveled like across so many um, different countries. And then coming here, I'm always like, we're black people. Like I I, like it actually I am taken aback Mm -hmm. by how few of us like I find maybe like and this is completely different probably for from where you grew up, but like in in Canada, especially in British Columbia. Yeah. Right. so and then every time I go home, I'm like, ha, ah. <laughs> there's, there's a change, you know? <laughs> yes. That that's just- like being an actor, like seeing, you know, black people everywhere in the bank, yeah. uh, everywhere you went. Everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. Right. So I like I, I'm always wondering, like how what that experience is like for someone who is black, but who didn't grow up in like say like uh, like, a, like I, I grew up in a black country like white people were like so few yes mm-hmm. and then like this is like political reasons like it was so unstable but people were just not coming into burundi right mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's it's always fascinating my uh, one of my friends was actually who she was on the first episode of this podcast and her niece who was born in edmonton Mm-hmm. So the first time they traveled back, they were going through Addis Ababa and like this child has never really been around that many black people. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to make a connection, a connect, like a, a flight connection. And she slows down because she is so overwhelmed by how many black and brown bodies there are around. Yeah. yeah. And then she's and then so she asks like, oh, my gosh, there's so many. And then they realize so they pause and like kind of ha- let her have this moment. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I've always found that uh, fascinating, like that, that, like to 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 find out how people yeah. have like that landing experience. Yeah, and you know, when I was um, in in Africa, like when I first was there, you know, you find that just as I, um, you know, I realized that African Americans have so many misconceptions uh, of Africa. Like I have to keep telling people it's a continent. It's not a country. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I yes. go to Africa, which is a country. Yes. I was like, so, you know, since they're very different with different languages and different, you know, yeah, so that's, yeah. that's misconceptions. And when it was funny, cause when I was in Africa, like the, uh, a lot of them, the Tanzanians that I would meet and stuff, would come and ask me things about like, you know, Beyonce and Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I said, I don't know them. Sorry. <laughs> I wish I did. 
Aren't you, you guys like uh, buddies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Think all African-Americans had money and all kinds of crazy, you know, because looking at the, you know, the, the mediated image that they were right. getting. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> like I wish I knew Beyonce. What is this? <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Design Unmuted podcast brought to you by Divine. If you liked what you heard, please rate and tell your friends about it. You can subscribe so you never miss an episode. Find me on Instagram at Ramesha Design Unmuted and also on my website at www rameshadesign.com. The track you're hearing is called Under the Sun by Kafaye, singer-songwriter, and produced by Ozenit, or Zenith, by Kiga and Saint-Jean. Enjoy. Under the sun the day is done. Under the sun the day is done.